Hello, everybody, and welcome to Special Education Matters. I'm your host, Michael Bull. Great to have you here today. Today, we have Lynn Merrill, the founder of the Merrill Education Center. Reading, as we all know, is a fundamental part of success in school and later in adulthood. A child with a reading difficulty needs extra support and attention to help them be as successful as they can possibly be. Lynn Merrill, my guest today, has been helping students with reading and other learning difficulties since 1993, when she founded the Merrill Education Center. My talk with her today covers some of the strategies, success stories, and motivations behind how her work has helped 200-plus students become successful. Lynn Merrill, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for asking. Well, it's nice to talk to somebody about special education and assisting our kids out there who have extra learning needs. And, you know, you founded a a group called the Merrill Education Center. And people are probably curious about an overview, you know, the sort of that elevator pitch of what does the center do and what's it all about? Okay, well, when when I finished teaching special ed in regular education, I opened the center so that I could reach children in a totally different way. I think that all too often in schools, because of limited funds and resources, children are grouped together by categories, and there really is no category for any group of students, whether special ed or not. And so I realized when I was in special ed that whenever I had time to work with a child alone, it was they were able to learn so much better. And so when I started, I made it a doctrine that the teachers that worked with me would never take more than one child at a time to work with. They would get their undivided attention. Um, We would work to remediate any differences that they had. Um, We would use creativity. We would take into account the child's likes and previous successes and failures and build upon that to give them a sense of competency. And so what started as you know, one child to, uh, in 1993 eventually advanced until, you know, we were serving more and more children, always the one-to-one model, though, because I believe it's so important to consider one child at a time because no one is the same, and especially in special ed where they seem to be grouped in groups that don't fit. So you do more than just one-to-one with students. Do you have other services as well that you handle? Um, well, yes, we have we have a homeschool program that we do for students, and we work with different um, different groups across the country. We're accredited uh, through Laurel Springs, where we have programs in Florida and Vermont, and they provide the program for the child. And what I like is they allow us to modify the program to fit the child and then to enhance it as the child grows. So we do one-to-one education in the center and also online. Mm-hmm. I am a reading specialist, and uh, I use several different reading programs to help children with reading disabilities, whether it be with decoding or fluency or often with comprehension. Uh, you know, the term dyslexia is not a popular term to use anymore, and actually it means every one of those three things. So children come in and present with different problems in reading. And, you you know, there was one child that came in. Well, he wasn't a child. He was a 23-year-old man, and he brought his parents with him. And I asked him, I said, wow. I said, you know, I'm looking at your grade reports. You're in Cal State Northridge. 
your high school reports. You got A's in English, A's in reading. And he just looked at me and he said, I can't read. And oh. his, father, his father said, Lynn, he's been a college freshman for three years. He can't get out of this freshman year. So I told him about one program. I did give him a test to find out if that would be a suitable one for him. And we began it. And his problem was he couldn't decode. So he learned decoding. He wasn't a fluent reader since he never dared to read out loud. And then he couldn't see the turning picture in his head. And to me, that's the saddest part of a reading disorder is when someone can read well, they're watching a movie in their head and the movie's turning. Uh. And when they can't read well, they see, sometimes they see stick figures in boxes and those stick figures don't move. Sometimes mm-hmm. the same stick figures will move to another box and sometimes it's all black in their head. With him, when I said, what do you see when you read? His response was, people see things when they read. So he had the, the misfortune uh. of seeing all black in his head. And after about, oh, I guess it was six six months because I had to bring him from a second grade level up to college. And after that group of time, I looked up one day and tears were rolling down his face. And I asked him, I I said, did I push you too hard? I know I did. I said, (laughs) I just knew you could see the picture and you didn't know when I wanted to show you. And he said, no, I'm scared. And I said, why are you scared? And he said, well, why? He said, remember I told you a few weeks ago I was seeing six figures and they were in a box? I said, yes, and we thought that was great progress. And he said, well, they just walked into the next box and all these people are conversing. And he said, I've never seen anything like that. And I said, welcome to movement. And he, but at that point, I said, your program is done. Now, he went on to get a master's degree and he went on to be a CEO of a major company at this point. So anything is possible. I haven't heard the description like that of, of reading. That was really interesting. And, and it's powerful, of course, to share these stories. And, and that sort of leads to, to my next question. Like, you know, you work with a variety of students, and maybe you'll hear about a variety of students. W- which types of students do you think benefit from your program the most? You, know, you might see them in a setting, you think, oh, my gosh, if we can help this child, we're really going to make this child grow. What type of child is that? Is there a certain type or uh, learning issue that uh, you guys work best with? Well, I think that we have a math therapist at the center, and she does brilliantly with teaching all the foundations and all the missing concepts, identify and teaching the missing concepts of math. Because, you know, without those concepts in order, if you're missing one, you're going to miss several steps in math. Mm-hmm. And with me, I like, the, I like the child who, you know, just wants to learn to read, but can't, and has tried many different programs, often in groups, which I don't believe works as well um, as having a teacher's individual attention. And then having a teacher, you know, I've been a reading specialist 43 years, and having a teacher who can just cut through and say, well, we don't need to do this. This is where we need to start. And, And read a child like that. When I hire reading specialists, that's what I'm looking for. Because I don't want to waste their time. I want them, the children to start feeling competent from day one. And I've worked with adults, too, all the way up to 68. Wow. <laughs> I, I'm curious, you know, when, you, when you're doing that, when you're working with these kids, you, you talked about competence. And I, I was going to ask you ask about confidence. How much of your 
energy and time is spent in helping kids and using specific strategies that you've already talked about versus empowering them to know that, yes, you're going to be successful. There's maybe that balance between the two. I actually do it all together. As I'm teaching them, you know, I, I praise what they're doing right. And, and they honestly begin to flow through the program. And I make them aware of that. And I do think it's confidence. I think that in the public school room, you know, often you're afraid to read aloud because you may make mistakes and you're aware of that. And you know that other people are aware of it. So in a private setting with encouragement and knowing it's okay to make a mistake because we're going to teach you and you'll never make that mistake again very often. I think that 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 makes a difference for them. So I find that you have to be confident and you have to be positive yourself from the time they walk in to impart that to any student anywhere. Now, I can imagine you've seen special education change, you know, again, going back to 1993 today. And has yes. it gotten, I want to, maybe I know the answer to this. Has it gotten better in some ways that you just see and you have more access to kids now and there's more people coming for services or do you find it more difficult? How do you see those changes since 93? Well, if we're looking at the schools, when I was in the public school system in 1993, it was pretty much the same. Many teachers would know that a child had difficulties, but when they got to the meeting, because um, sometimes, you know, the school district did not have the money and was not funding programs, you know, they would say something different. And that always bothered me because the child then was left behind. I think now there's more of an awareness of reading disabilities, and they're not all auditory processing, which the school loves that. Um, the school districts love that term. But I have found that many children who learn to read and comprehend, it actually, there is no auditory processing. It appeared that way because hmm. they, mm-hmm. don't, they, don't, they don't give credence to uh, reading disorders in the school. They just call it, you know, well, they're behind and they sit you there with a workbook and they read it to you and you read it back and they help you answer the questions. And I want my kids when they leave to be independent and able to do that on their own. So I think that, I think that they're making strides. And I honestly believe, you know, as a teacher a long time and most teachers out there want to do everything they can. They're just restrained by the budgets, you know, in the States. Yeah, it's the systems. It's, you know, you'll read some negative things about teachers. And as a teacher myself, I'm like, I don't think we feel that way. We're probably pretty frustrated by the system that we're a part of at the time. Yeah, I used to find all kinds of ways to try to get around the system. And when my principal retired, he came in and he said, you know, you've cost this district an awful lot of money over the years. <laughs> And I said, because I told the truth, he said, yeah, I know you told the truth, but he said, I, what I want to tell you is I'm retiring and you're able to do that. So you may want to go the same year I go, because I don't think anyone else is going to defend you like I did. And he was right. (laughs) I saw the door opening to my own private practice at that point. (laughs) Uh, And away you went. So were you one of those teachers who said, you know, this student or child will benefit if we do this sort of thing, which costs money? Well, what, yes, and I remember one time having a fifth grade class, and it was a regular fifth grade class, but they were all, their scores from the year before in reading on a standardized test were horrible, and I looked at the book they were giving me to teach from, and I just went in and said, you know, I can't use this. I said, the most interesting story is about a boy making donuts, and that's not going to catch these kids' interest, 
And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to teach some novels. And I said, here's a list of 12. I'll teach one, one a month. And I said, you know, let's see what that does to their scores. And he said, if they do not come up by the end of the year, you are back to the program. And I said, deal. And of course, they all did come up because we had so much fun and there was so much variety. And those are the things now that school teachers can't do because of all this, all the, you know, standards that have to be set and all the learning that have to be met. And that's one thing that not teaching in the schools I get to do. And I find it uh, a really good uh, addition to any programs I teach. Now, you're talking about the idea of teachers as designers. And since we're in the classroom with the kids, we often have an understanding of, of what their needs are because we happen to be there and we're, we're closest to the student at that point. Absolutely. The classroom teacher is invaluable. And even to this day, I find I'll call a classroom teacher to get more input on a child. And they're so, they're so knowledgeable and they're so kind with giving me any kind of knowledge I want, which I put to use. So, I think that parents often consider it the teacher's prop. It's the teacher, and sometimes it is. I agree. There are there's in any in any business or in any profession. There's going to be people that you know are just burned out or not happy. But overall, mm-hmm. I think that the teacher it can be your best ally. Now you've been doing this for a while. You're still you know if people listening to this are going to hear that you're very passionate and just sounds like you're still interested in having fun in all this. What keeps you going? Like what what motivates you and keeps you doing the work that you're doing? You know it's the energy that's created when I work with a child and they begin to succeed. Um, I love my job. I wanted to be a teacher since I was eight years old, and honestly, it was because of a bad teacher, and I figured if she could teach, I could teach. And I would do a better job of it. And I've always kept her as kind of a a dark role model. And I never wanted to go there. I wanted to always feel good about going to work, to be happy, to make the kids want to learn. And when you're dealing with children that have problems in reading or in any subject, when they begin to learn that energy and that peak of interest is something that you can just capture and hold on to. And, And that's what I kind of go in there and do every day, try to get to there. Yeah, it makes me wonder, like, if a new special education teacher, if you met, let's say, a group of them, and they were looking to you saying, hey, can you give us some words of advice about how to stay excited throughout the years? Would, would it be the in, harvest the energy of the students, or would you have additional advice? Well, I, first of all, I would tell them, this has to be what you want to do. You know, there's a lot of people in many, many jobs that just aren't meant to be there. And it takes a lot of work, and it's not just, you know, eight to three every day, I will tell you that. You know, you take files home, you work with kids, but, you know, if this is your passion, then be yourself and let the children know that you're genuine and you care for them and that you will help them get where you say you will. Make them trust you by getting them there. And that's something I always try to do. And I've taught over, oh my gosh, in private practice, maybe 200 students to read, to put couldn't read before. And every one of them knew that I believed in them and they trusted me and they got there. Sometimes it just takes believing in them because they've lost a lot of belief in their own ability sometimes, especially when they've been battling this over different grades. 
Now, you could think about the just the economic power of 200 readers versus 200 non-readers and what they're able to do to benefit themselves and society in general. Oh, it's amazing. I, you know, I, I, and you know, this is the misconception about reading disorders. Many children with reading disorders are very, very bright. They have to, to figure out how to get through so many years of school and go undetected. And, you know, they're very bright. And of course, if you don't read well, then your grammar sometimes is affected. Your writing is impaired. And once it all comes together, you know, you are very empowered. And that goes for special ed kids, too. Um, the Linda Mood Bell system, for one, believes that mm-hmm. every child can learn to read. And so does Sally Shaywitz a medical doctor from Yale University who found that reading disabilities are neurologically dictated from birth on. And so I always tell parents, it's not you didn't read to them enough. It's not that you didn't sing enough. It's not that you didn't chatter enough. They came into this world like this, but we can fix it. It doesn't mean... Yes, I'm sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Please finish. I said it doesn't mean that we wouldn't still, they may not still be impaired in a bit, but it's not going to show. They're going to get through school. They're going to understand what they read. And so let anybody call it what they want. If it's not presenting, then it's no longer a problem. I mean, a lot of what I hear when you, you talk about that is just uh, every child's going to learn to read. If you have that sort of attitude, you're going to figure it out until that yeah. child is, is as, as successful as they possibly can be. Exactly. And no one's the same. People will say, well, how long will this take? And I'll say, you know, I can't tell you. Many reading programs tell you that it has to be five hours a day, five days a week for a number of weeks. I can tell you that I have never had a student, no matter what the age, be able to sit in front of me for five hours learning. No way. (laughs) And so I don't do it like that. I do two to three hours a day at the maximum, three for maybe the high school kids or somebody that needs mm-hmm. to be finished to go somewhere else. And uh, But two hours a day and the teacher staying focused and that child being part of the process, that's what makes the difference and makes it done a lot more quickly than many centers will say. The reading programs do need to be daily and they do need to be consistent because what we're doing is the neurons are not connecting to the three sections of language in the brain. When they do, reading is automatic, but we can't go in there and change this. And so what we have to do is allow the brain to do the changing through the work that we're doing to make it happen. And Dr. Sally Shaywitz from Yale did many MRIs of non-readers and readers and found out that when the neurons did not connect to a language section, there was a, it was dark. Mm-hmm. Neurons connected, she could see them firing. And that's how uh, okay. we figured out that there was a neurological basis to a reading difficulty. Got it. Well, Lynn, we're coming towards the end of our time. I wanted to ask you a, a final question. And, and I typically ask a more future-oriented question. And where do you see the future going as far as research and therapies about becoming even better at figuring out how to remediate reading difficulties? I mean, if we talk 20 years from now, would there be six new therapies that are even better than what we have now? I think so. I think that people have begun to realize in the um, scientific community that this is a serious impairment 
for children who cannot read um, and cannot write on grade level. And there's been an interest in, since 1993 of really developing new ways to do this. I will caution against one, though. I had a mother who came in, and this is kind of a cheap story to end with. She said she was going to someplace, and her child was going to sit in a chair, and a machine was going to revolve around her, and this was going to fix her reading. And I said, oh, I said, please let me know how that works out for you. So she came back the next week, and she said, I think I'm going to put her with you because, you know, the dogs have all the appointments. And I said, what? She said, well, the therapist huh? also does for dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you saying dogs are learning to read now? <laughs> no, but they're, they take the same type of treatment <laughs> that a, a reader or anybody else with an educational problem happens to need according to this type of therapy. So it was, it was very amazing. Uh, and I said, yeah, the dogs would kind of scare me away, too. It would be so cool if that worked, though. If there was just a magic machine that just spun around and everything was fixed. You know? That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? I don't think we'll be there in 20 years, but I think we'll be a lot closer and we'll have a much better understanding of this population. All right, well, let's talk in 300 years from now, and maybe maybe that's when it'll happen. <laughs> maybe. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for your time today. It's been uh, very enjoyable uh, talking to you and hearing about all your passion to help these kids uh, learn to read and be as successful as they can be. Thank you for asking me, and... I I want everyone out there to know that anything is possible. Thanks for listening to another edition of Special Education Matters. For more information, including show notes, head to our website, csnlg.com slash listen. And if you like what you hear, please uh, consider giving us a review on iTunes. Those reviews bring us lots of happiness. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we will talk again soon.